my big thing lately has been that design isn't a process. And I think that what happened with design thinking is that it, it turned into a process. And so it's that five-step process that you see. You know, design is a practice. And so as a practice, like practicing an instrument or anything, you get better, it improves. And so I really want us to remember not to get stuck in processes. Hey everyone, I'm Bon Ku. Welcome to Design Lab. This week I get to chat with Mia Osaki and Tina Park who are tackling healthcare through design. They are partners at Diagram. It's a design studio based in New York City. And what's so unique about their design studio that it's fully dedicated to healthcare? As far as I know, there's only a handful of design studios like that. When Tina and Mia are not solving the thorniest problems in healthcare, they host a podcast called Ya No, where they explore new ideas in healthcare. Mia and Tina are my kindred spirits. They're so passionate about healthcare. They believe that the creative expression that is inherent among designers can make the healthcare industry more human-centered. They use role-playing, participatory design, and narrative to redesign our experience with healthcare. In our conversation, we talk about bringing the culture of design into the house of medicine, what it's like to explain design to Asian parents, and why Tina and Mia believe that designers should be on every healthcare team. Some of you know that this podcast is a labor of love. My producer, Rob Gleesey, and I spend hours every week to make this podcast interesting and engaging. So if you like what you hear, the best way that you can support us is by subscribing, rating, and reviewing this podcast. Thank you for listening. And here's my conversation with Mio Saki and Tina Park. Mio Saki and Tina Park, thanks for joining me on Design Lab. Thanks for having Thank you for us. having us. So you are partners at Diagram. It's a healthcare design studio based in New York City. Can you tell us about the type of work that you do? Sure. We are designers by background and Diagram is a healthcare design studio and we have kind of a niche position. We believe that design needs to be pulled up in the in the pathway so to speak so that you we can make and help to drive decisions earlier in the process so mm. really we do research design research we do experience design service design and we look always looking for innovative methods because we really believe that without the input of the people who are actually going to be using and impacted by what you're designing, then, mm-hmm. you know, you just run the risk. Design in healthcare is such a long process, a lot of regulation and kind of different milestones that you have to hit. And if you wait too long, we just found from our experience, then you miss the opportunity to yeah. make any meaningful changes. Yeah. I, I hate when you bring in design so late, it's like almost like an afterthought, but it really needs to be like there in the beginning. I think that the general perception of design is to think about a thing or a product or or even a service. But I think that where we're trying to intersect in healthcare is really in the part of the thinking process, really starting to make sure that we're asking the right questions and starting out with the right questions. Because if we wait until design comes at the end, oftentimes design doesn't have a way to influence what that question is. And so we work a lot with people very early in the process to say, let's 
step back and make sure that we're asking the right question and talking to the people to make sure that they are providing input to the problem that's at hand. Mm. Yeah, I, I think the inclination is to jump to solutions. So there's always a mm. lot of ideation and brainstorming. And we've just gotten to the point where we want to say, let's just wait and see and listen and, and figure out what's happening in this situation. So design kind of falls out of that listening to people and finding out what's going on. Mm-hmm. Especially hard to do with know-it-all doctors like me, right? <laughs> we all always want to jump to the solution. We don't want to wait. We're like, what's the solution? It must be hard dealing with people like me, right? To like, I think doctors are really impatient. Doctors, well, I think that you see, I think the challenge is that you see so much on a daily basis where there are problems, right? And so I think as kind of problem solvers in the day to day, I think doctors really want to say, well, if we could just do this, or if we could just tweak this, or which I think that we have to attack healthcare from all angles. So I I don't discourage that. But I definitely think that it is hard to kind of step back and say, is that truly the problem that's Mm. at hand, right? Or do we need to go back a little bit more? Because otherwise, I mean, the metaphor of putting a Band-Aid on a problem is really apropos here, right? Is that you're just putting a Band-Aid on it and then and that's not really necessarily going to go to the root of the issue. Because often I think we assume that we know what the answer is or that we understand the problem, but a lot of times we we're, we're, we're wrong and it's important to take a step back. Do you, do you have any examples of, of that where maybe the people that you're working with thought they understood the problem, but pausing to take a step back and doing research, you go, oh, this is actually a different type of problem than the one that you had understood. Yeah, I mean, luckily, I think most of the people that we work with do have a moment to step back. I think that one of the biggest issues that we're seeing right now that I think is a really interesting challenge is this idea of healthcare loops. And what we see happening, and this is a project that we did recently in diabetes, for example, in young adults, is that there is proven data that says that if you're on diabetes technology, so an insulin pump or a continuous blood glucose monitor, Uh that, that your numbers are improved, your blood glucose numbers are improved. However, in order to get on diabetes technology, you have to have better numbers. But you have to, in order to get better numbers, you have to have diabetes technology. So it's this Mm. loop. And we were working with young adults in the Bronx, and they were telling us about all of these issues that they were facing with, with technology. And there was this inclination to say, let's focus on the technology. Let's make that technology better. Mm. And then we stepped back and we said, wait, but this is, if, if we get the technology better, it's not going to help them to get on the technology faster. So mm. let's step back and take a look at that loop and see where is the intersection point or where is our intervention opportunity and think about what is it that can be done in order to really kind of break that loop instead of just mending the problem at that moment. Mm. I think it's good to keep in mind that these issues that when you see and you want to respond to something that's not working, it's also intertwined in a system that might be broken. And so I think that that's going back to the root of why is this even an issue is important. Mm. And I think in healthcare, there's so many broken systems and there's a lot of 
oppression in the, the systems. There's a lot of, you know, very old things that just may not be relevant anymore as well. And I think that that's where design gets a little bit trickier and you can't really look at it necessarily as like a problem to fix all the time. I mean, the whole system is broken. I, I look at it not as a system of broken things, but like the, the whole that's system itself is just terrible. Yeah. And yeah. Well, well, Rob and I got a chance to visit you at your studio in New York City it was like a year ago, exactly. Yeah. And Unbelievable. Which is on the anniversary of our meeting. I know. One year ago. That. One year ago. Like, and I I I was so excited to learn about the type of work that you do because there I don't think there's too many studios out there that just focus on healthcare. Is is that right? That's right. Yeah. yeah we're one of just a, a, a if there's a handful, maybe uh, we actually have a colleague that out in California, but there's really very few fully dedicated hundred percent to healthcare. Why, why are you so passionate about healthcare and why do you believe that healthcare needs design? Wow. And we've been working, <laughs> this is the other thing, is that we've been working in healthcare for so long. And when we started working, Tina and I have known each other for a very long time. We went to graduate school together. And um, what, you went to graduate school together? Yeah. Yes. In, in, Cal in California? <laughs> in at Art Center College of Design. Yes. And that's yes. in, in uh, Pasadena. North Pasadena. That's right. Okay. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So we go way back. each other for a very long time. Yeah. Before the healthcare design came in. But when we started, there wasn't anything even called like patient-centered care or patient-centered mm. design. And we've watched that grow over time. And when we were doing it, you know, we came out of studying human-centered design and saying, what if we started here and looked at, you know, patients, not necessarily as people who have a disease or who are sick, but patients as people and mm -hmm. looked at the, what are their daily activities? What are their goals? What do they hope to achieve? And take that point of view to design, which it was, it existed in product design, but not so much for healthcare experiences. So we kind of, start, we were lucky because we started uh, working at a time where it didn't exist. And Tina and I, you'll see like with a lot of things we do, we just jump in and say, it seems like something should be happening here. And, and we love to, to work in that space. Hmm. I also think that Mia and I just coincidentally, our interest in narrative has always been very strong in storytelling. Hmm. And we have kind of carried that through in healthcare. And we've seen it be such a challenge for people to become the protagonist in their health. They have to be able to reflect, understand. They need to be able to be prompted to think about the way that their condition has influenced their lives, what their goals are in the future. Mm. And those are the types of questions that healthcare wasn't asking. Mm. But designers do a great job of doing that because we have ways of creative expression that people can use in order to really think differently about their experiences and really externalize those internal feelings and emotions that go along with health that they don't necessarily get the opportunity to do. And I did a little bit of research on you both and you had different paths into like healthcare design because you didn't jump right into that from graduate school, right? You, you, 
I, I think one one of Mia, you were in the music industry. Is, is that right? And can you tell us? I'm kind of curious to know what is that origin story of how you went from graduate school into healthcare design for each one of you. Yeah, I mean, I even have to go before graduate school. I, I was a musician in my past and worked for. Oh, so cool. Worked for a, <laughs> yeah, I was. I worked for an independent uh, record label in California called Asian Man Records. And, uh, you know, what we saw at the time, you know, I was doing like pressing records. We were doing paste up on flyers and album covers, you know, things like that. Wait, pressing records? What does that mean? (laughs) Remember, (laughs) let's explain what a record is. I know. Bond's so young, he might know. I know what that is, but for people, the younger people who don't know what a pressing a record is, I think that's an important ancient technique that our listeners should know about. That's right. That's right. It was in the days before digital. And I think what was interesting was there was a moment where digital music came out, MP3s, and and that everybody was like, what's going to happen to the music business? And Mm. what I I was kind of interested in is that there were new players that kind of came into the scene that weren't from the music industry. So Apple and even, I don't know if you remember Napster and, you know, technology was coming in to shift the industry. And and what I kind of mourned at the time was the record, small record labels, the distribution, the musicians really didn't know what to do and weren't playing a part of it. Mm -hmm. And I do see parallels like as we we came into work in healthcare it was at a time where technology again it was like these stories of startups and technologies coming in to change and shift the landscape of healthcare yeah and healthcare went from analog to digital too so fast i'm old enough where i use paper medical records and would, would try to decipher the handwriting of doctors and carrying around paper charts and going to digital. So I love that kind of parallel between the music industry and, and healthcare. How about you, Tina? Were you in the music industry as well? <laughs> no, <laughs> I think the, the music industry thanks me for that. No, I, I, I have a little bit more of, a, I think, a straightforward path is that, well, I went to art school undergrad against the wishes of my very Korean parents who, of course, wanted me to be a doctor, which I thought was never actually going to happen. <laughs> but I thought I was going to be a doctor all up until basically high school. And then I realized that it wasn't the pathway for me. And then so I studied graphic design undergrad and I worked in a variety of different places. And then I found graduate school and in graduate school, I discovered design research, which is really mm. what this human-centered design is really rooted from. And I actually was invited to join a grant right after I finished grad school from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation mm. with a, a great group of people looking at teenagers who were transitioning from pediatric to adult health care because it's mm. such a challenging um, time for teens with chronic disease. And I kind of discovered this human-centered design uh, crossover with healthcare, which was perfect because I thought I was going to be a doctor, but I became a designer. And so now I was able to kind of explore that. And I think that it's just about growing that practice. And I I just can't imagine that I would not be in healthcare design. And I love mm. to see how it's growing as a practice because more and more designers now 
Mia and I both are also involved with academia and so working together with students to try to foster that understanding. And there's so many of these kind of schools and things like that popping up that are fantastic to see. That's amazing. You won the game because my Korean parents, you know, would have (laughs) had a stroke if I did not become a doctor. So I had to go do med school and residency in order to get into design. (laughs) And so somehow right. you flipped that model. Right. I'm so jealous. You did Trojan horse your design yeah. career. You should, you should tell my parents they had the, the classic line of, you want to go to art school? You're <laughs> going to be hungry one day. And I said, I'm going to be okay. <laughs> How did you explain to your parents what design is? Because my parents would have no idea. Like, how do you explain to Asian parents what design is and what healthcare design is. My parents still don't understand what I do. I've told them so many times. We've been written up about in a, in a Korean journal about what? our methods. Really? Yes. And I even gave them that article in Korean and they still don't understand what we do. So when they get asked what their daughter does, they say, oh, she has her, her own business. That's the explanation. That's acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no more questions. <laughs> We have an episode, you know, we have a podcast um, as well called Yeah, No. And uh, we have an episode where we call our dads. Oh, I missed that episode. What season? It's in the first season. season. I got to listen to that. I think it's the last episode of the first season. It's very funny. Can you describe what those conversations uh, were like? We asked them what we do. (laughs) We said, in your own words, describe what we do. Oh, my gosh. It's it's the best. Tina's dad it's is so good. cute. He's like <laughs> huge fan of Mr. Park. He's the. Uh, I think he. So. I think he wrote it down. It was very funny <laughs> yeah. because I think he was very nervous about what what he was, was going to say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> My father's a designer. So I had, really? had a little bit more maybe liberty to become a designer, but he's he comes from a different tradition of design. So <laughs> I I think he spent you know, all this time now, I think he might understand a little bit of what I do, but it's, it seems they still go, I don't know. I don't know what she does. You mean from the different tradition of design, like more of like a classical design sense? Yes. Very Bauhaus kind of Mm. very traditional design background, but he was in advertising. So he was very focused on the idea and the concept of an idea. So can you, Talk a little bit about that tension between classical design informed by Bauhaus and the type of design that you do of humanizing healthcare. Yeah. Without going into design history, I think in the simplest terms, there's designer as inventor or creator. And I Mm -hmm. think as in the tradition of design, that designer created something, made something, and that brought in aesthetics and may have been independent from the use of this object. And then I think with thinking about human, human-centered research or usability research, then we, we started thinking about you. We moved from I, the creator, to you. How do you use this cup? How do you use this chair? And really thinking about how, how to improve that experience. And I think where we're at now, which is another point, and our practice is even evolving over time, but we're thinking about more about we 
And what does Mm. that look like to move from I to you to we? And so we use methods of participatory design, co-creation. We really believe in bringing people in with lived experience to uh, be in the design process. And that's super important and relevant for our work, whether that's patients or their loved ones or their family members. In the dis- disability design community, for example, there's the, the phrase, nothing for us without us. Mm. And I think that's really the spirit of where we believe you can make some impactful changes when you start to think about the communities and you start to um, understand what's, the, what's happening in these communities and and what do we, you know, how to make this work for them. And I think that we take that concept of we in everything that we do and in that even when we're developing within groups, we try to bring in cross-disciplinary thinking. And that has always been one of the tenets of design is collaboration and being able to critique, provide feedback. Those are all kind of parts of the culture of design. And I think that we do that in uh, the work. We like to make sure that we're bringing not just a group of doctors in a room, but uh, mixing doctors, nurses, patients, staff, yeah, social workers, community, you know, health workers, and making sure that we're bringing all those voices together, reducing the hierarchy that exists within that so that there is conversation and we're able to really ideate around a problem area. There's such a hierarchy in medicine, probably one of the most hierarchical professions out there. And I hate it when we are thinking about creating a new product service experience service line in the hospital and you get into a room, there's just a bunch of boring docs like me who have all the power. And that's how traditionally medicine works. And the type of work that you do with the participatory design and cross collaboration, it's so hard. It's hard. How do you do it? What are some of the challenges? And maybe can you share a few of your favorite projects that you've broken through that hierarchy and were able to really inspire those who are in a room not used to working in this manner? Yeah. Well, we do a very interesting and fun thing with doctors that they hate, but that they ultimately come around to, (laughs) which is we really like to use role play as a way to get people out of their thinking. And it is at first, it is such a hard barrier to break down because it it's very, it feels very, you feel very vulnerable, right? And I have this great example of we did a workshop with doctors and this doctor had decided that his prototype that he was going to do in order to help patients remember their medications was to call them and leave a voicemail when they were sitting in the room so that they could hear him say the medications he was going to prescribe, but then also have it recorded, which everyone thought that's a great idea. And then I made him role play it, which he, you know, the first time he did it, I said, no, I really want you to pretend that I am your patient and this is what's happening. And so he said, okay. So we sat down and I acted like I was his patient. He said, I'm going to prescribe these things for you. And then he pretended to call me on his phone and he said, Tina, I'm prescribing this medication for you. Here's how you take it. And then he just stops in the middle and he goes, yeah, this isn't going to work because I feel ridiculous talking to you on the phone while you're sitting in front of me. And I said, yes, 
it does feel ridiculous for me as a patient to sit here and look at you while you're leaving me a voicemail, right? And so that's one way uh, that we kind of try to break down those barriers a little bit, because mm. when you're forced to play a role, or sometimes we switch roles, right? We say you mm. play the patient, and somebody else plays the doctors, then you're really starting to bring in that empathy that we're always trying to do in healthcare, and people are able to share in that lived experience, at least for a moment. Yeah, It's such an easy, efficient way to develop empathy with that quick role playing. It's so I, I love that. Yeah. yeah, it's so hard. <laughs> I think people really get uncomfortable, right? Yeah, another way is, you know, we, we just work very closely with people. We really believe that healthcare is really about relationships and care itself is about relationships. And so in the development of a relationship, we try to figure out how do we reduce any harm in that situation. And I, I think it resonates with physicians, with doctors, with administrators, but you just forget when you get into your regular day-to-day and it takes time to build a relationship. So one of my favorite projects that um, we did was around um, recovering after a heart attack. And we spent Mm. lots of time with people and their families who had just had heart surgery. And, uh, And what we realized is that they just needed someone to ask them how they were doing. Mm-hmm. You know, and it really kind of shifted some of our work where we were doing, we had always done ethnography or research in the home. Mm-hmm. But then we started realizing when you're dealing with an experience that happens over time, we have to do the research over time. And it mm-hmm. needs to sustain. If you want to sustain engagement, then you need to understand what happens a week out, two weeks out. So we ended up doing research that was over maybe two years and over again with the same people. We got trained in um, motivational interviewing and it was all in the nature of research, very carefully done so that people understood what they were participating in. But we coached them through the research and worked with physicians. And it was so eye-opening for everyone because it, it didn't look like what research traditionally looked like, hmm. right? We had narratives, we had stories, we had these really kind of distinct moments where somebody would open up. And I think that um, we just forget, I think we get in our daily grind and we forget about people. Those stories are so powerful. I think of like stories and narratives as like data personified and yeah. in healthcare, it's all about the the hardcore quantifiable data. But what that, what these data sets don't give you is these stories from the humans of, yeah, how are you doing? How are you feeling? You can't get that from a data set. And yet that's, right. it's so powerful to hear that narrative and it gives you different information that can't be found in a data set. Do yeah. I think there's, in healthcare, there's a tendency to dismiss the N of one, right? Yeah. Because it, it feels like there's nothing that can be learned from that that can be applied to a larger population. But that's what we work together with healthcare to do is to say there are human qualities there in that N of one that can be applied to a larger population. So let's find those things so that we can adapt our behavior or change our behavior in order to affect that larger population. And, and we forget that the N of one, it always happens at the patient bedside. When I'm talking to a patient, that's an N of one. Yeah. And I'm drawing that's that right. one story from a patient 
that's an end of one. And right. it's powerful. And to me to be able to get that story from the patient in a way that's accurate is so important. Yeah, right. Yes. And it's hard. I mean, you're pressed for time, you have other things to do. And we understand it's just really challenging in order to even obtain that. And I think it's hard to also just be able to parse through all of the things that you're doing in a day in order to really be able to pull that insight and say, well, what did I actually learn from that exchange that I can take with me in my practice? Mm. Yeah. It's hard to measure too. I think I mean, that this is something maybe we have a question for you is that mm. we know the value of story in healthcare is so important, but, you know, sometimes it's not quantifiable, right? Mm -hmm. And so what do we, we do with that in a system that's kind of broken, that the incentive is around fixing and identifying a problem very quickly, but the issues that people are having are long-term and there's deep context and there's issues at home. And I don't know. I, I, how do you, how from a physician point of view, like, is it, is it matter these stories? Yeah. I mean, it, they 100% matter because data doesn't move me, but the, the stories of humans move me and you know what, and I think it's the reward systems and incentives build in healthcare that they're around these quantifiable measurable data points, which is great, right? Of how are you going to improve our outcomes based upon a surgery or a medication and how do you quantify that? But we don't have incentives for improving the overall, I guess, quality of life for a patient. Right. You know, a patient goes, hey, I feel much better after following this regimen that you prescribed and my life has gotten so much better. You can't really capture that in a data set. Yeah. Right. right. You could capture the change in hemoglobin A1C and the return to hospitalizations, but this kind of like more of the non-quantitative measure is, is hard because there's the incentive structures aren't there for me to right. make a patient feel better. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I get awarded if I could make a change in some bio physical parameter of reducing blood pressure, right? But not, right. oh, this person feels so great about their health right now. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some interesting work coming out of Mayo Clinic from a group called Patient Revolution as well. And they talk a little bit about- That's with Dr. Victor Montori. Yeah. yeah with, yes, with Victor Montori. And they have this great thing about talking about biology versus biography, right? Mm. And, and it's that biology part that I think- healthcare providers are always so focused on because they are tied to outcomes because that is the incentivization structure and the patient revolution. And, and we talk a lot about biography. And so what about that biography? And it's those two things coming together that really can change healthcare. He was on your last show of the podcast, right? That's right. Yeah. And I love your podcast, the Yondo podcast, and I've learned so much from listening to it. Everyone should listen to it and subscribe. Yeah, everyone should listen. <laughs> what? Why did you start this podcast? It's a lot of work. You know, Rob and I doing this podcast, it's a lot of hours. So why do you do it and what have you learned from doing it? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that we started Yano because we needed a way to process everything that we were 
learning and hearing in the work that we were doing at Diagram. And as designers, we we learned through that processing. Mm. And there are these kind of larger concerns, issues, big picture kind of ideas that were coming out and we needed an avenue a way to express that and talk through that. What do you hope for the future of healthcare and what role will design play in that? Yeah. I mean, design, my big thing lately has been that design isn't a process. And I think that what happened with design thinking is that it it turned into a process. And so it's that five-step process that you see, you know, design is a practice. And so as a practice, like practicing an instrument or anything, you get better, it improves. And so I really want us to remember not to get stuck in processes and especially when we're thinking about systems. And so we need to evolve because the world is changing. So design needs to change too. And I think what we're, there's a lot of really interesting work out in the world now saying some of the practices, including human-centered design that we have been using for a long time may, may not be working for us. And now that we have exposed a lot of systems, again, systems of oppression, racism in our systems, we can't ignore it. And so that's where we're looking at methodologies where we can, how do we, again, push back on this idea that we're going to come in and solve the problem or Mm. even start with a problem. Maybe we we don't even want to start with a problem. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that we are strong believers that not every problem can be solved through design Mm, in healthcare. mm. Oftentimes, I think it's seen as, well, let's tick this box because we heard that we're supposed to do something around design and design thinking. And so not every problem can be solved by design, but that there should be a designer on every healthcare team Mm. because it brings another way of thinking new methodologies, different approaches. And so to bring that early in the process and have a designer sitting at the table is just a different way of working. And that's what we need. It's a different way of thinking about and working about with healthcare, not just let's just use this newfangled process mm-hmm. because it'll, you know, get us to a new a new world. And so we just, I think one of the visions for us is to ensure that design has a seat at the table. Yeah. So that means educating designers how to work in healthcare. It means mm. educating healthcare still on, on design and that there's different ways of doing design, especially with now you hear patient-centered all the time. And, mm-hmm. and we just, as Tina mentioned, it's become a checkboxing activity. Oh, well, we talked to a patient <laughs> Thank you very much for your feedback. You know, we've learned a lot from, there's a group called the Disabled List, Liz Jackson and Alex Haggard. And they always kind of push back on even this idea of empathy might be a little problematic because when you you do an interview, you, you say, thanks for your participation. You take that information, then it leaves the person who you just spoke to. And so we're Mm. trying to say like, how to, again, how do we sustain that relationship and keep that person as a part of the team that would come up with how to address some of this stuff. Do you have advice for designers who want to get into the healthcare space? Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of people come through and who are saying we want to get into healthcare. I think that 
oftentimes what we see with designers is that sometimes it's a little bit scary to just dive into healthcare. And so they want to tiptoe in. Mia and I live and breathe healthcare every single day. And and it's just that big. We have to. There's just every aspect of, of healthcare is, is kind of thought of for us as like, okay, so how do we insert design into this? And for designers who are trying to get into healthcare, we always say that it's a shift in perspective. And to really kind of look at healthcare as a design problem, you can't approach it as, oh, there's all these regulations and rules in healthcare. That's really always what the challenge is for designers. They want to be free and, you know, out there thinking. And I think that, you know, because there are those parameters in place, it can feel a little constraining. And so we always try to acknowledge those and say those exist. But within that box, there is a lot to think through. And so we try to encourage young designers who are getting into healthcare to really start to ask better questions to, you know, really get to understanding the underbelly of what's happening in a a, um, situation and to get at the level and meet people where they are. I mean, that's one of the Mm. biggest things in healthcare is, you know, the readiness of some people is at a high level and some, you know, are not so ready. And so we have to design things for them to meet, help meet them where they are. And that I think is a different kind of approach for designers because they want to design a beautiful thing and just, you know, make it beautiful and then they'll use it. But that's not the way that it works in healthcare. Yeah, we don't need more things, really. We need more better thinking, like we were talking about Mm. earlier. It takes, again, it takes time and not to give up. I mean, I think that we have to be really brave and we just keep going. You learn so much in the process. So I think that it can be frustrating when you get into a system and you, there's so much to learn. We always talk about a triple curve in healthcare because you have to understand um, oftentimes we're working in a, a disease state or, you know, there's an issue like diabetes or cancer. So you have to learn what you can learn about cancer, which for a designer, you may not know anything about cancer. And then, you know, you have to learn about the healthcare system. And so that's another curve. And then there's always some kind of partnership or company involved, and they have their own system of working. And so those learning curves, they're steep in the beginning. But once you learn them, because it's about building capabilities, not skills necessarily, the capabilities will scale over time. I think those of us working in healthcare are so hungry for creativity and a different mindset in it. And my co-author, Ellen Lupton, and I talk about the next revolution in design can happen in healthcare. And I appreciate you both leading that revolution and I'm such a fan of, of your work. And it was so great, me and Tina, to have you on Design Lab. We're we were so blown away when you you tweeted us, and we were like, "How how is this possible?" Like we were just like, was like Tina texted me. She's like, "Did you see who just tweeted?" <laughs> yeah, you're a force. You're a force on on social media. Yeah, so we're, we, we were we're excited. Yeah. It, it's such a small us. space, healthcare design, and I, you know, I'm this anthropologist of folks in this space and I'm just a huge fan of of your work and thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) 
Joining me now is the producer of Design Lab, Rob Puglisi. Rob and I used this time to geek out about what we just heard from the guest and to give you some takeaways from the conversation. Rob, I love Mia and Tina. They're so awesome. Yeah, you guys did a great job hearing the three of you talk about design and healthcare. It was super geeky and I loved it. I could totally talk with them all day long. They're so smart. They're um, kind of leaders in their field with healthcare design. So I learned so much from uh, chatting with them. I like what they were saying about the triple curve. I've never really thought about it that way. What was that again? Remind me. If you're a designer coming into a, a project in healthcare, there's three different levels or probably more of things you need to learn about and to understand and to get up to speed on. So like, first off, if you're working in a particular disease state and you need to learn about that disease state, if you're talking about cancer, you need to learn about cancer and the treatment process and that journey. Then you have to learn about if you're working for a particular health system, every health system works different, right? And you have to learn that system and how that system works. And then the, the other curve was like there's relationships. Usually there's the health system, there's the providers, there's maybe some other organization, like some company that they're doing business with. So the designer has to then understand that relationship and that interplay. Uh, that's really daunting, right? You could imagine for a designer, especially let's say if you're a student or you're new to design or new to healthcare design to have to go into a space like that where you have to learn so much just to gain the language to be able to operate. I love that, that Tina and me are Asian like me. We, we share that and some of the struggles of trying to explain to our families of what design is and how they just don't understand it all. Bon, how would you explain the design side of your work to your parents? Um, there's no way I could explain it. No? No way. They would not understand. I Yeah. They, would, they may get a little disappointed. So I wouldn't... I just tell them I'm a doctor. It's hard because people, when they think of design, they think of classical design and making beautiful objects and not for humanizing healthcare. And I think that's the role that design can play. Yeah, I think that's like one of the things that your book does a great job at is taking design and just explaining it by pointing to examples of it. I really think that's just the best way. And when you show people, people are like, oh, that's what this is. You know, it, it really sinks in. So I really loved the interview with you and, and Tina and Mia. But I think this would be a really great opportunity to talk about the other side of your world, and that's being a, a doctor in the emergency department. Yesterday was Thanksgiving. Today is Black Friday, also Native American Heritage Day. You spent, what, 12 hours in the emergency department last night taking care of a lot of patients who had COVID. Is there any kind of human stories that you could tell from your experience these days? Yesterday was one of the worst days of the pandemic. My side of the emergency room was filled with patients with COVID-19 and very sick patients. It seemed at one point that everyone had COVID there and a lot of people are very afraid. They're afraid of what are the long-term impacts of COVID-19. Um, what's sad is that you know, some of the pa older patients I came in who were really sick, uh, didn't have family members with them. And it's just hard when you are in the hospital alone. So we're at this point where we're not allowing family members to come in because we want to decrease the risk of infection. So 
it's mm-hmm. it's very lonely to get admitted to the hospital, and especially because yes, it was Thanksgiving, and patients did not want to be in the hospital during Thanksgiving. We're planning on having Mike Natter back on the show pretty soon, and he's been doing a really great job at, at telling that story. And he also includes a lot of stories of hope in in the work that he does. So I want to end on a high note. What do you hope for? Well, listen, I'm happy that we're going to have a leadership who takes COVID seriously. And I think I'm hopeful for a national strategy for us to end this pandemic and having the right leadership to do that. We have not had that. And that's led to tens of thousands of Americans dying needlessly. You know, I want to say to everyone who is out there working on Thanksgiving, it'll be there on Christmas and New Year's through this really hard time. Thank you. Thank you, Bon, and thank everybody for for the work that they do. They're all heroes and, and hopefully things will get better. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tina and Mia. You can find their studio. It's called Diagram, both on Twitter and Instagram. And do yourself a favor and subscribe to their podcast. Yeah, I know you won't regret it. Thank you for listening to the show. Please support us by subscribing, rating, and most importantly, reviewing this podcast. I'm your host, Bon Q. Rob Puglisi produced this episode. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week. Thank you.